Hello and welcome to another Mad Philosopher podcast episode. Today is June 10th, 2018, and Bitcoin is trading at 6,755 United States dollars to one Bitcoin. Today is a unique day as relative to other podcast episode days because this is not a requested podcast by any of my uh, fans or sponsors. This is one that I'm just doing of my own volition because it's an idea that I have decided is important to explore, and while I've been exploring it for years at this point, I haven't had the opportunity to have this conversation with uh, other intelligent individuals, and I thought now would be a good time to bring up the idea and see if any good discussion comes of it. Today I'm discussing ontology. Now, writ large, ontology is basically the study of things that exist and the manner in which they exist. A lot of times ontology gets wrapped up in phenomenology, gets wrapped up in metaphysics, gets wrapped up in a lot of religious discussions, and gets wrapped up in a lot of postmodernist debates about social functions and status functions and social constructs. So before I get too deep into ontology itself, I want to just address, as always, the fact that philosophy is holistic. If you were to imagine a big tangled ball of Christmas lights that are plugged into the wall, you'll have all these different gems of insight and different ideas that are the bright shining lights in this tangled ball of lights. And each one of those ideas touches a million other ideas that are there and they they all work in tandem with each other. However, in order to get to any one specific light from another light, you have to begin untangling that ball and finding the progression from one light to the next to the next to the next, even though they're all interconnected and overlapping with each other. So to give you guys a little bit of a roadmap of where we start and how we get to this discussion on ontology, I'm just going to run through this tangled ball of lights as quickly as I can from a starting place to the light bulb that we're going to be focusing on today. So in this case, uh, we're going to start with phenomenology. Phenomenology is usually my starting place, partly because of the series of books that I read to get myself introduced to philosophy when I was so young, and partly because, based on my own crazy mental states, I am very focused on the manner in which my reality is bounded by my sense perceptions and my internal narrative. We're going to start with phenomenology, the study of things that we feel and the way in which we feel them. These are all the different sense perceptions you have. The last couple episodes have been discussing phenomenology. So phenomenology leads to epistemology. I feel things and then I come to know things about the things that I feel. Through phenomenology and a quick application of logic, I can come to know things like the principle of non-contradiction. And the principle of non-contradiction gives us a basis by which to start defining and refining our understanding of knowledge, which writ large is usually considered to be a justified true belief. But there's a lot of different ancillary ideas and corollaries and caveats to that definition that make the study of epistemology very interesting. So phenomenology the things that I'm feeling and the things that I'm sensing, and later the knowledge that comes from those feelings and senses, sensations. Ultimately then, epistemology gets us to ontology, where I'm going to start making claims about the feelings that I have, the way in which they exist, and the knowledge that I have and the way in which that knowledge exists, and then the subject of that knowledge, the things that I know about, and the way that those things that I know about exist. A lot of times in the Cartesian tradition, things don't make it past that initial 
three steps, right? We're going to have sense perceptions, but we can't really trust the sense perceptions. We're going to have knowledge based on logic derived from those sense perceptions. But then when we start talking about what actually exists, we end up back at square one because we're not even certain that the phenomena that we're experiencing are real. And that's where people get hung up. As a kind of practical philosopher, I I just kind of I'm willing to have those discussions, but I'm perfectly willing to bracket them in order to have other more fulfilling discussions about human action, for example, which ultimately we're going to get around to human action by the end of this recording. So our focus today is ontology. So we go phenomenology, epistemology, ontology. In ontology, one of the key discussions, one of the live debates that has been going on since ontology became a field within philosophy is specifically what requirements ought we to have for granting ontological status to apparent things. You're going to hear me use the word things a lot in this discussion, and thing is kind of just a generic term that applies to any thing that may or may not exist, any observable object of a phenomenon. What requirements do we have before we grant an ontological status, before we say, yes, it exists, or no, it doesn't exist, or oh, it kind of exists, or it sometimes exists, or it will never exist, it can't exist, it has to exist? These are all different ontological questions. Clearly, in this discussion, phenomena is going to enter into the picture first, given the introduction that I gave to this podcast. In what way ought these phenomena be said to exist? In the interest of avoiding quandaries such as the ones that we discussed in the most recent episodes, we will take phenomena for granted and focus on what may give rise to those phenomena. So we're going to bracket that initial question and we're going to focus on the objects of phenomena. In the case of Kant, we're talking about the noumenal realm, which was off limits to Kant, but we're not Kantians, so we can work within the parameters that we feel like working in. So what exists? Different people start from different priors. For example, the medievals tended to start with God, and his revelation to man, right? They're going to take for granted the existence of God, and then through God, they're going to import the Bible, the scriptures, the traditions of the church, things like that, and pretty soon you get Thomas Aquinas. Pretty soon you get Peter Abelard. Pretty soon you get Augustine and the Desert Fathers and all these different ways of interacting between man and the divine. Now, one hang-up of this, of course, is that you have to just assume the existence of some form of Christian or Jewish God in order to start getting all of the other things that God gave you. And as became apparent during the Enlightenment period, that certainty in God's existence is less epistemically sound than some people felt was warranted at the time. So we're going to track a little bit further back in history and look at the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks started from the apparent objects before us. For instance, the the desk in front of me, or a rock out in the field, or a giraffe loping through the countryside, or the individuals sitting around with me drinking wine and talking about how we need to keep these slaves in order so that we can continue drinking wine and discussing how to keep the slaves in order. Later on in that ancient Greek tradition, they started focusing on other objects as well, such as math. If uh, Pythagoras can demonstrate that math obtains universally based on the rules outlaid in in math, basically using logic to prove logic, then we can assume that that fundamental ontological state is one of mathematics. This is where Plato ultimately derives his idea of the forms, and the forms are this abstract perfect idea of everything, and then these abstract ideas become manifest in these less than perfect manifestations in the world, right? That tree over there is not perfect. 
but it's a reflection of a perfect tree. That triangle over there isn't perfect, but it's a reflection of a perfect 180-degree triangled, tri-sided object. In the modern and postmodern philosophies, a lot of these philosophers tended to get hung up on all sorts of priors. Like I was discussing before, we've got phenomena, we've got logic, we've got social constructs, we've got all these different things that may or may not be the basis for which we grant existence. A lot of modern and postmodern nominalists will focus on the nature of language and will focus exclusively on language games and the ideas that we play in our head using our native tongues as opposed to any of the actual objects that those languages discuss. They're kind of trapped in that Kantian phenomenal realm. Pragmatically speaking, though, somebody has to start somewhere. If a phenomena can be reliably trusted and acknowledged by multiple observers, it would seem to be as good a starting place as any other. Basically, I'm appealing to the intersubjectivity of the world, where if I see a table in front of me and my perception of the person next to me claims to also have a corresponding perception of the table in front of me, then I can assume that that table exists. This brackets the phenomenological and epistemological problems that we addressed in recent episodes, and it can be addressed on the back end after initial ontological questions get answered. Basically, we're going to take for granted these phenomenological experiences of intersubjectivity and the objects in front of us and blah, 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 until we're able to build out a logic and a cohesive ontology. And once we have a cohesive ontological set of requirements for allowing something existence, for assenting to a thing's existence, at least provisionally, then we can come back around to those phenomena that initially gave us all this to work with and see if they meet the criteria for existence that we had built out of that initial phenomenological basis. I know this kind of flies in the face of Gerdell's incompleteness theorems, but I do think it still applies as the incompleteness theorems mostly focus on just mathematical proofs as opposed to the broader structure of logic and inductive reasoning. In my reductionist and recovering logical positivist method, I've come up with three necessary and sufficient conditions for granting a thing an ontological status. The first would be that you have to have a phenomenological ground for belief. Essentially what this means is that phenomena themselves must possess some sort of ontology as they are the mechanism for self-awareness and therefore all subsequent thought. Those things to which phenomena ascribe being must also exist in some capacity or another, even as mere phenomena. Basically, the idea here is that we're going to go back to the table in front of me. The table in front of me is producing these phenomenological events in my mind in some way or another. Whether that table just exists in my mind and is producing other ideas in my mind or whether it exists external to my mind, the reality is in some way, shape, or form that table exists. So we're going to grant it an ontological status of existence, but now we have to determine the manner in which that table exists. As previous podcast episodes and future podcast episodes will attempt to demonstrate, I don't believe solipsism is a tenable philosophical position. Solipsism, for the new listener, is the belief that only the individual exists. Basically, if I were a solipsist, I would believe that only I exist. Everything else in reality is either a part of me or is merely a series of phenomena existing within my own mind. So that would mean that all the other people that I experience the existence of are actually just figments of my imagination living within my own mind. Or those people are in some way or another actually just me manifest in a certain way that I'm able to self-reflect. 
that it gets really complicated really quickly when we get into those parameters, but we don't need to worry about that right now. What I want to focus on right now is just the idea that making a solipsistic claim implies the existence of somebody outside of oneself, which there therefore would be a performative contradiction. If I have to express a solipsistic idea, then I'm assuming the existence of an audience, and if the audience is only myself, there's no reason to express the idea because I already have the idea within myself. So it's a performative contradiction to express a solipsistic idea. Because that's the case, we're going to allow for intersubjective confirmation of phenomena and their underlying causes. Like I was talking before about that table in front of us, I have to believe in the existence of people outside of myself in order for this discussion to have any meaning whatsoever. The inevitable outcome of only allowing ontology to phenomena ultimately results in solipsism as well. Therefore, we can assume outside causes for the intersubjectively confirmed phenomena. In other words, the, the phenomena of the table existing within my mind sui generis as its own unique thing doesn't work because if somebody outside myself is also able to observe that table and create a similar phenomenological experience, that means there must be a common object which gives rise to those experiences. Our experiences don't have to match perfectly for us to be able to acknowledge that there is in fact a thing giving rise to these phenomenological experiences. There's always that old metaphor of the elephant and a bunch of blind people touching different parts of the elephant and getting different ideas of what the elephant is and the manner in which the elephant exists. We can allow for that and still say the elephant exists even if our phenomenological experiences of it are different for whatever reason. That's the first necessary condition for granting a thing ontological status, is simply having a phenomenological grounds by which to assert that the thing exists. I, I could claim that some object that you have no idea about whatsoever and I have no way to describe it exists outside of all of our perceptions, but there's no reason to grant that thing ontological status because I'm literally claiming the existence of something that we have no way of knowing anything about. Then the second thing would be doing. Now, doing seems like a pretty broad and also pretty narrow requirement. Technically, this is covered by the first condition. Given that causing phenomena is doing something. However, there is a broader implication than mere phenomena and multiple classes of causes which can cause phenomena. For example, I can be talking about hallucinations. A hallucination gives rise to phenomenological events. I can imagine that that table has suddenly gained sentience and is speaking the 216 character name of God or something like that, but that's obviously not going to be the case, in which case that phenomenological event has an ontology separate from the table itself. It could be a chemical imbalance in my brain or the LSD that somebody slipped into my Mountain Dew before making this recording. There's also, of course, the actual existence of a unicorn. I, I could, in theory, find a unicorn in the backyard, and because I'm ideologically committed to the non-existence of unicorns, and I see a unicorn there, I can assume that it is some sort of chemical imbalance in the brain, or some sort of trick of the eyesight, or maybe somebody took a horse and dressed it up to look like a unicorn, and in reality there is in fact a unicorn there, in which case the unicorn would be giving rise to the phenomenological experience of a unicorn. So we've got an interior cause and an exterior cause, and both are examples of a thing doing things. One would be chemicals in the brain, the other would be an actual horned horse hanging out in the front lawn. This is where my logical positivism starts to show. If one were to observe an object moving, one could speculate as to what is causing the object to move, thereby granting ontology to the subject of speculation. In this case, if you were to throw a ball at me, 
and I see this ball and I see it coming towards me and I see you, I can say, you threw the ball at me, therefore you exist, and I see the ball traveling through space and producing the phenomena of me witnessing the ball traveling through space, therefore the, the ball has some form of ontology as well. Another example would be like magnetism or gravity or momentum or gremlins or the force. These are all things that I could ascribe that movement to as a force, which I would then grant ontology above and beyond just the ball itself doing ball things, which would be reflecting light, producing a small gravitational field. Depending on what the ball is made out of, it might have an electromagnetic field that is, is ferrous in nature. Without justification rooted in a thing's ability to do something, one could begin insisting that even imagined, dreamt, or hallucinated things are really real, man. They're like totally real. I took the, I, I ate a bunch of mushrooms once, and this dragon like came down out of the trees and told me all these deep things about reality, and like that dragon totally exists, man. It's not just the drugs up in my brain, but like that dragon's really out there in the forest. You can, you can just only see him when you're totally tripping balls, man. You see where this is leading. So then the third necessary condition for granting something ontology would be a non-redundant or contradictory status. What I mean by this is, while effectively this is where my reductionism comes into play since we've done the logical positivism already, unless there's a reason to separate causes for similar phenomena, the bias ought to be towards maintaining a single cause for similar phenomena. If I see a ball over here, and it has all these different properties of a ball, I don't necessarily need to come up with an external cause for all those properties of the ball outside of the ball itself. Again, when we're talking about forces and stuff as they apply to the ball, unless there's a compelling reason to separate magnetism from gravity, the bias ought to be towards incorporating both gravity and magnetism to the same thing. Of course, then when I have an iron ball and I hold a magnet above it and it's no longer traveling towards the center of the earth, the, you know, the heart of the closest, largest body of mass, but instead travels upwards towards the magnet, then we have to come up with a separate rule that applies to magnetism in order to differentiate between those two different phenomena. I mean, I'm talking about sciencey things, but this applies to every aspect of one's life, right? That dirty look the person gave me on the bus could be because I smell bad, or it could be because they heard the racist podcast I was listening to over my phone or something. There are some consequences to this position which deserve acknowledgement. There exists an odd problem of identifying the doer and the doing, which provides our basis for granting ontology. So strictly speaking, our epistemology is limited to informing us only of the doing and not the doer, as it is the doing which produces the phenomena. What I mean by this is if we're saying that an object gives rise to phenomena as a feature of what that thing is doing, because the phenomena itself is a thing that that object is doing, then that object to which I'm referring, that thing, is locked away behind that phenomena. This is where I begin to sound like a Kanti, where I'm talking about the thing in itself, and the thing itself is removed from the phenomena of the thing itself. However, unlike Kant, I'm going to say that there are some things that we can say about that noumenal realm. It's possible that there exists an ontological entity beneath the epistemic phenomena observed, but our conception is liable to collapse the ontological thing in itself and the epistemic observation into a singular identity. Unless there's a logical or scientific reason to break those two entities into different things, I would say that the noumenal realm itself actually collapses into the phenomenal realm. So when I'm talking about the ball, 
the thing itself. I'm actually just talking about the phenomena of the ball because the phenomena is the product of the doing that is the phenomena that is the ball. I'm not saying I'm an idealist. I'm not saying only the idea of the ball exists and it all exists in my mind or in the mind of God or something like that. But what I'm just saying is that all of the descriptors, all of the essential qualities that we would assign to that ball are actually things that that ball is doing. It's reflecting light, it's producing a gravitational field, it has a certain chemical composition. These are all things that it's doing as opposed to things that it is. Ultimately, what it is, is, well, to abuse an action term, a term that applies only to humans, I'm going to say that it's performative. The ball-ness, the essential qualities of those ball, are actually a performance that the ball is, is. Another way of putting this would be that being and doing collapse into a singular ontological state, whereby being is an action and vice versa. Again, I'm abusing a term that applies only to humans, action, but it gives you a, a rational handle to grab onto what I'm talking about, a linguistic handle to grab onto what I'm talking about. Additionally, we must note that human action belies ontological commitment. This isn't necessarily due to any of the specific features of the above definitions, but it's actually a justification for having this discussion in the first place. What I mean by this is in the same way that solipsism is untenable as a philosophical position because expressing a solipsistic concept belies the belief in outside existence or individuals that ex exist outside of one's own mind, I'm going to say that these human actions that take place, the one that I always like to harp on is hunger because it's just so easy to point to. A person is hungry. They imagine that eating food will uh, make the hunger go away. In order to alleviate this discomfort, they act on that imagined property of food and they eat the food and it either assuages their hunger or not. It assuages that discomfort or not. That whole statement there is just rife with ontological commitments. There's the ontological commitment to the existence of the self. There's the ontological commitment to the existence of the discomfort. There's the ontological commitment to the existence of the food and the interrelationship between the existence of that food and the existence of the individual's discomfort and the individual himself. As we add each of these entities, they develop their own relationships, which must also be addressed in some way or another by ontology. What I mean by this is if the food exists in a spiritual realm or something like that, and the individual exists in a material realm, then none of this works. The, the food cannot assuage the hunger of the individual unless that food is also operating within the material realm. So we can solve all of these interrelationships between the ontological things by creating an abstract principle that applies to all of them. For instance, they're all material entities, but without that rule, guiding those ontological commitments, then who knows if food's going to work, right? And then we, we don't have the ability to imagine, imagine solutions to discomforts, and then the entire project of human action implodes on itself. So that whole little bit right there that I was just teasing apart these ontological relationships is just to show that any individual that acts is acting on ontological commitments that they may or may not be aware of, but they exist. There are clearly several subsequent questions that need to be explored relating to these necessary and sufficient conditions that I've presented, such as the ontology of ideas and social functions. If an idea exists in my head, 
we don't really have a way of looking at that idea. Nobody outside of me is able to see that idea in my head. I've done I've been I've done podcast episodes on this idea before. Uh several years back I did one concerning intellectual property and slightly more recently I did an episode on contracts. Both of these kind of play into the ontology of ideas, especially that one on intellectual property. I'm actually really happy even now with that argument. There's a few things that I I've changed my position on on ancillary subjects to it, but those ancillary subjects are just informed by other ontological commitments that I've made since initially making that podcast episode. But it's still pretty good, and I suggest everybody go back and listen to it. I want to say it's called Intellectual Property and Batman. Additionally, as is the tradition of ontology, we need to discuss the hierarchies of being. And this is something that I don't really necessarily want to get into right now in this episode, as we're already coming up on a half hour. But what I mean by hierarchy of being is, in the medieval world, they would say, well, God exists, and then everything else that exists is some sort of subset of God, or subsequent contingent thing on the existence of that God. And when I'm building this sort of uh, ontology from the ground up, from these phenomena up, we might set up phenomena as a different type of being from the object the phenomena points at. And I've already discussed collapsing the phenomena and the subject of that phenomena into their own singular identity, but that's something that I think needs further discussion before we can just assert that that is in fact the case. Additionally, if we're talking about different social functions, such as contracts, we need to figure out whether a contract has an ontology in and of itself, or whether it's something that is a function of social behavior. For example, I couldn't necessarily point to the existence of a contract out in the world that's distinct from the ink and the paper. The, the ink and the paper doesn't do something outside of being ink and paper, just producing the phenomena relative to ink and paper. And so the contract itself doesn't enforce anything. It doesn't have any ontological or metaphysical impact on the world around it. What instead exists is these social commitments to upholding the ideas that the contract produces through the written word on the contract, in which case I would say that that social commitment is something separate from the contract itself. It's basically a second-order existent thing. Now, I, like I said, I don't want to get super deep into this, but I just want to point out where this conversation is going. As a matter of fact, this coming Friday, I'm planning on sitting down with a couple of friends, having a couple of drinks, and discussing this very issue. And and we'll see if anything cool comes out of it. This is actually the reason why I'm making this episode is because I want to have kind of an external record of what my ideas are before this conversation so that going into it on Friday, I, I can come out on the other side and compare what I said before as opposed to what I feel after and kind of double check my, my work. It's just like doing a math problem in reverse to make sure you still have the right answer. So I hope all of you were able to stick with me as I kind of just rambled through ontology and philosophy and were able to keep up with me as I kind of just spoke extemporaneously about a lot of like vocabulary words and things like that and didn't really actually come up with any conclusions other than to just present a series of ideas and some consequence of those ideas, consequences of those ideas. And I would love to hear your feedback. And if there's any specific questions that you think need a very detailed response or any historical references that you would like me to make where I maybe take apart a specific philosopher's ideas concerning these subjects, I would love to do that. But I'd also imagine that compensation may be in order to, to motivate me to accomplish those ends. So you're always welcome to send me emails at madphilosopher at gmx.com, or you could find me on Facebook. Unfortunately, my Facebook profile has been set mostly to friends only for various reasons, so unless I really trust you, I won't be able to 
accept you as a, a friend on Facebook, but you can find some of my public posts there and you can find my public Facebook page, which would be facebook.com slash unapologetic philosophy, all one word. So with that, carpe veritas and have a great week. <laughs>